to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Our lesson tonight is from our Bible study series on Philippians, and the subtitle of the series is Finding Joy in a Negative World. As we've mentioned many times, this is one of Paul's letters. It's written to one of the churches he had a great relationship with, and it's the one that's most full of joy and rejoicing, and um, not just in its content, but in those words. But it's interesting because he wrote it from prison, and he was able to find joy in prison. And uh, a lot of what he deals with, along with everything else, is how we can experience that same joy in negative circumstances. The title of our lesson tonight is Be Like Jesus. Be Like Jesus. Maybe some of you remember that old chorus, To Be Like Jesus. I'm not going to try to sing it for you. (laughs) To be like Jesus, to be like Jesus. All I ask is to be like him. All through life's journey from earth to glory, all I ask is to be like him. In what ways can we be or should we be like Jesus? Let's just throw a couple out. If you're going to give us one, just give us one so we can have several people respond. What are some ways we should be like Jesus or can be like Jesus? What would you say, Sharon? Kind. Kind. Yes, Janet. Loving everyone. Loving everyone. All right. Vita. To be be a light to our dark world. John. Humble. Humble. All right. Anybody else? Lynn. Forgiving. Forgiving. Yeah. A desire to please our Father. Yeah. Anybody else? We could make a big, long list, couldn't we? Yeah, there's a lot of them. I I just have uh, holiness, a love for and commitment to God, compassion, love for others. We're going to be looking at um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Just a quick review. Last week, we dealt with the first part of Philippians 2. And Paul was talking about uh, some benefits that we have as believers. If we have a relationship with Jesus Christ... In him, we have encouragement, we have comfort, we have fellowship, we have tenderness and compassion are the specific things he mentioned. And he says, because we have that, it should result in good relationships with each other. And it should result in unity. And we've already alluded to the fact that even though it may not be a humongous problem, we don't know for sure, there is a little bit of problem in Philippi with some disunity. And that's one of the other themes Paul's writing about besides joy. And he says, because we have all this good stuff in Jesus, make my joy complete. This is what would make me really, really happy. Okay? Basically, deal with the issues and walk in unity. All right? He talks about being of one mind and one love and one spirit and one purpose. And he says the key to that is to count other people as more significant than yourself. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. It's from last week, but it'll lead into what we're going to look at tonight. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then in verse 5 and going through verse 11, he gives Jesus as the supreme example of what that looks like. And we did read that last week because he kind of wraps that idea up with, and this is how you should do it, just like Jesus did. But it's interesting because the passage we're looking at tonight, it's like Paul says all that stuff and he says, just like Jesus, and all of a sudden he launches into 
what is one of the most beautiful um, theological, poetic description of who Jesus is and what he did for us. Okay? In fact, it is very poetic. Some believe it may be an early song or hymn. Some people call it the hymn of Christ. And it takes the story of Jesus just real quickly from him being in heaven, existing before he came to earth, how he came to earth, how he died on the cross and was buried, and then he was resurrected, and then he went back to heaven. Okay? And we're going to see that as we read through it. So let's look at Philippians chapter 2. We'll read the whole thing. Uh, not the whole chapter 2, but verses 5 to 11. He says... Have this mind among yourselves. Some translations say something like, have this mind in yourself. And we'll talk about why there's two different ways of looking at that. Which is yours or which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So tonight I want to deal with two questions. You've got them on your note sheet. First of all, who is Jesus, based on our passage tonight, and how shall we be like Jesus? Now, I'll just tell you that this passage, because of all the things I've already told you and a number of other issues, is one that we could dig in and spend a lot of time just on that first question, okay, uh, and all the, on all the stuff that's raised by that. But we're going to try to moderate that so we don't spend all of our time on that so we can get to the practical application of what we learn from this about how we should be like Jesus, Okay. So from this passage, and we'll throw in a couple other things too, who is Jesus? You know, one of the uh, premier stories is in the Gospels is when Jesus takes his disciples away for a retreat. And he says, who do men say that I am? And they give a number of responses. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? So if you were to go out and take a survey or ask your friends or other people or whatever, who is Jesus? What are some of the responses you might get? And again, if you give one, just give one so we can get several people responding. What are some of the responses people might say about who is Jesus? A prophet. A prophet. Okay. God incarnate. God incarnate. Okay. What else? What? Lord. Lord. All right. Now, I'm looking for not just right answers, but wrong answers people might give too. What are some other things people might say about Jesus? Lisa. A good man. He was a good man. What else? A what? The man upstairs. All right. To put it in really theological terms. Barbara. Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. You know, there's all kinds of names and descriptive titles that the Bible uses that we could use to talk about Jesus. You know, there's a lot of people that don't believe that Jesus is God, you know, or that he is the Son of God, which would be answers. Um, there are those who would say he never existed. That used to be very popular. Nowadays, people that would say that, I'm not trying to be ugly, but they're basically uneducated because anybody who's educated and knows history knows that a man, at least, named Jesus Christ really did exist, all right? He was not a fictional character, all right? Um, some would say that he was just a good teacher. Some would say he was an angel, 
Um, you may or may not know this, but that's what the Mormons believe. They do not believe that Jesus is God or that he's the Son of God, but he is basically, um, uh, him and the devil are basically brothers. Without getting into a lot of details, and the devil's a fallen angel, and he's a not fallen angel. Um, some would say he's a prophet, uh, Jewish Messiah. Uh, some would say he's a supernatural being, but less than God, more than humans, but less than God. That's kind of in general what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, and that's why, without being ugly, that's why the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christian, even though they may claim to be, because they do not believe the biblical truth of who Jesus is, Okay. Um, the Son of God and God. So I'm going to throw a couple things out there. First of all, on your note sheet, number one, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And you can get to a lot of discussions with the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, why they don't believe he is, and they'll throw things back and forth and back and forth. But this passage is one of the main ones that gives support to the fact that he is God. In verse 6, we read it just a little while ago. It says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The English Standard Version, which I just read that from, says he was in the form of God. The New International Version says, in very nature, God. It says he was, in the, the form of the Greek verb there is that he wasn't just, he, it isn't that he was at one point in time, but he was as far as his entire existence. He, he was and he continues to be, all right? And um, when it says form there, it means form or nature, the outward expression of the inward essence or nature. So, in other words, when it says that he was in the form of God, it means that that's who he was, all right? Um, the essential unchanging character of something. Uh, basically, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ possessed the very nature and character of God. In that same verse, it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Basically, he's saying he was equal to God. You know, whatever we think that means about he didn't consider it equal to be uh, something to be grasped. We'll talk about that in a moment. It's saying he was equal to God. And when something is equal to, it's exactly the same. I mean, four equals four. Four doesn't equal 3.9999, however many nines you want to tack on the end. All right? Uh, one billion equals one billion, not 999,990,999.99. You know, it's, it equals, it's exactly the same. And it says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, the word that is used there means to be, to take hold of, to hold on to. It can even mean to take from, um, uh, and, but the idea here is the fact that Jesus didn't have to, have to grasp being equal with God or hold on to it or somehow take it to take it to use for his own advantage because he already had it. Okay? And so all those things wrap up to say that Jesus is or always has been God. I do have some other scriptures on there. Um, those are the other primarily, primary primary and most clear passages that talk about Jesus' divinity. We're not going to read them, but John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. And they talk about how basically Jesus is the exact image of God. He's, he's the physical expression of who God is because he is God. And um, 
the cults love to play with semantics and twist words and all that kind of stuff. And um, there are a whole lot of other things that we can draw from Scripture and from the New Testament that show that Jesus is God. But we're trying to primarily focus here on this passage, okay? So Jesus always has been God, and letter B, he always will be God. Okay, we'll talk about him being man, but it says, you know, he came from heaven, he came down, took on the form of man, but it wasn't like he left Godhead behind and he just stayed that way, okay? Um, but when we wrap this whole thing up, as I said, it, it kind of starts in heaven, comes down to earth, he dies, he resurrects, he goes back to heaven because he still is God. And he always will be God. Uh, it talked about how when he did all he did here on earth, that God highly exalted on him, highly exalted him, okay? Uh, I won't reread that. But um, the things that are mentioned about always being God are also additional proofs that he is God. Um, oh, by the way, um, I have down there Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. It's very similar to this passage, and you can read that later. But we see in this passage that he is to be worshipped. So who else in the Bible is to be worshipped other than God? Nobody, right? I mean, that is so clear but yet God's word says that Jesus was worshipped and is to be worshipped. All right? Uh, in this passage, in verse 10, it says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Okay? Um, just a quick note there. It says heaven, earth, under the earth. It's talking about heaven, the angels in heaven, earth, humanity, under the earth, the, the idea of the underworld or the afterlife or whatever. It's basically anybody and everybody is going to worship Jesus. All right? Uh, I have on your note sheet there Isaiah 45, verses 22 to 23. This is a really good verse to use with those if you have the opportunity to share with someone who doesn't believe Jesus is God, but they believe the Bible is true, okay? Um, Isaiah 45, 22 to 23, God is speaking. He says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. He's saying, I'm God. There is no other God. And he goes on, he says, by myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So what God says in the Old Testament is that you only do this for me. And the New Testament he says, and Jesus is the same thing, all right? Uh, you will, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that brings us to the second bullet point there, he is Lord. He is Lord. And he is called Lord all through the New Testament. And he's called that deliberately because that is the name for God in the Old Testament. But people say, oh, it's just meant differently. No, when it says that he is Lord, it means that he is God. It was the title used for God in the Old Testament. And, and, and what Paul is making clear here is that everyone will eventually recognize Jesus for who he is. The question is, will we do it now willingly? Or will we do it later and not necessarily be forced to? Because I'll be honest with you, I think when people stand before God that have rejected God, they won't have to be forced to recognize who God is and who Jesus is. It'll be obvious. They will bow their knee, but nobody's going to have to force them because they won't be able to stay standing. So the question is whether or not we'll recognize Jesus for who he is now or later. Okay? The second thing under who is Jesus. Number two is Jesus became man. Jesus became man. 
jumping back up to verse 7, right after it says he didn't try to hold on to grasp or cling to himself, the, the equality with God, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay? So it says that he was born in the likeness of men. Some translations said in human form. Now, the thing is, he didn't stop being God to become man. So on your notes, you want to make that clear, letter A, even while on the earth, Jesus was still God. Okay? But it says here, but he emptied himself. Now, we're not going to solve the deepest theological questions of the world in our discussion tonight. And this is one of them. What do you think it means when it says that he emptied himself? Because some would say that means that he stopped being God, and that's not what this is saying. The Bible is very clear that even while he was here on this earth and he became man, he was still God. Verissa. He did humble himself. Okay, so you're saying that when it says that he emptied himself, it's just another way of saying he humbled himself. And there's a lot of truth to that. A lot of people say that. It says, you know, he emptied himself basically just means that, you know, when you say you empty yourself, you give everything you have. Okay? So that's one way of looking at it. Lynn, I know this is one of your favorite verses, so what do you want to tell us? Yeah. yeah I know one of, your favorites, one of your favorite sayings is he, he how do you put that? He, he emptied himself of everything but love. <laughs> that's a very poetic way to, 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 to speak about that. That's right. You know, whatever this means in its totality, okay, Jesus was still God, but he did limit himself. Okay, I saw several hands, so I don't want to say any more because I don't want to steal your thunder. Who over here had a hand up? Theo. He purified himself. He what? Purified. Purified. Okay, but what's, what, uh, he, he was pure, but what, what does that mean? What, how does that have to do with him emptying himself? I'm not trying to be ugly, I just want to see the connection. Okay, but he wouldn't have had anything that was not of God because he was God. Okay, all right, another hand. Yes, Bruce. Yes, he took on full humanity, even though he's still God, so that he could experience what we experience, and that certainly is a biblical truth. Yeah, Chris. Okay, it's the only way that we could receive him, and it's the only way that, without getting too deep, because it's not the focus of the passage and we got other things to talk about, is that, you know, he had to become human to take our sin, but he had to stay God to be able to pay for it, you know? And so he was without sin. By the way, he was without sin. That is a very clear uh, part of it. And, you know, if he had had sin, he would no longer be God. But, yeah, Norris, we'll let you answer that. i got to go on so we don't lag. That's right. Because he became a human, and it says in the Bible that humans are a little lower than the angels, at least in certain, certain ways. So some things we can know for sure, Lynn mentioned this, he laid aside his divine glory. There was one time when he was on the earth when people saw at least a portion of his glory. We don't know if it's the full thing or not, but when was that? On the Mount of Transfiguration, when he took Peter and James and John up on the mountain, and it says that he was just about, basically about blinded them, all right? And he was there with Moses and Elijah. So obviously, uh, if that was his full glory, he laid it aside. If that was only part of his glory, he definitely laid it aside because that wasn't how he appeared all the time. Not only that, but we can see by the things he said and the things he did that he laid aside certain of his divine rights and authority and privileges. Lynn mentioned that. Um, 
I happen to believe, and I think Lynn mentioned this, that he laid aside independent use of his power and authority. What does that mean? That he didn't do anything just because he wanted to do it. The Gospel of John mentions over and over again that Jesus said, I'm not doing anything of myself. I'm doing what the Father wants me to do. And I'm saying what the Father wants me to say. You know, um, again, I happen to believe, you know, because of what we see in Luke and in other places, you know, when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down upon him to anoint him for his ministry. And it says that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And when he came back, it says he came back in the power of the Holy Spirit. I personally believe, and I'm very careful to say what things I believe, but I can't necessarily support it totally with a scripture verse that says that exactly, that Jesus did what he did in the power of the Holy Spirit so that when he came, not only did he experience everything we did so he could feel what we feel, but so that we could know that Jesus did it in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do whatever God wants us to do. Now, keep that in mind. We can do whatever God wants us to do, not what we want to do, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? All right. And Jesus also limited himself... Keep in mind, it was all voluntary. Some of his divine attributes. I think of omniscience, which means all-knowing. All right? There are definitely times in there where it's obvious that he does not know all things. You know, he said, he talks about when he was going to come back. He says, nobody knows when that is, only the Father. Now, I think Jesus knows now that he's in heaven. He knows when he's going to come back. But when he was on earth, he didn't. All right? Um, and obviously, he left behind his omnipresence, which means he's everywhere all the time. Because he limited himself to his physical uh, thing here. So anyway, but keep in mind, none of this means that he stopped being God even for a second. He was still God. All right. Now here's something a lot of times people don't think about. Letter B, even though he's no longer on earth, Jesus is still man. When he took on humanity, it was permanent. It wasn't just temporary. Yeah, he still had the scars after he was raised from the grave. It says that he was found in human form, talking about while he was here on earth, all right? And that means likeness or appearance, the outward appearance, okay? Um, and it and it's a different word than what was used earlier when it said that he had the form of God. Two totally different words because the first one means that he had the form of God. That means he had his essence. This one means that he added to that... Humanity. If it used the same word, it basically would mean he turned into a human, he was no longer God. But that's not true. All right? He was still fully God, but he also took on the form of man. All right? Um, it means that he was much more than a man, not just a man. Now, some other uh, things that we see in Scripture that show us that he still is human is after his resurrection, he still had a physical body. It was a glorified body, but it was still his body. They recognized him, and he still had the scars. Didn't have to have them, but he chose to keep them. I think it's a very good reason for that. Yes. Yes. Jesus was tempted the same way we are, but without sin. So we see that he still had the physical body. When he ascended to heaven, it was physically. He didn't just kind of dissolve into the ether, you know. Uh, his body is no longer there. He became spirit. He ascended physically, bodily, into heaven. And after he's gone, the disciples are still looking like, where's he at? What's going to happen? And the angels came and what did they say? They said, why are you staring? He'll come back one day, just as you saw him go. And when you look at the scriptures that talk about him coming back, he comes back physically. 
You see him described in the book of Revelation. He appears to John in a physical form. When John has the vision of Jesus coming back on the white horse, he's in a physical form. All right? So, yes? I don't know. The Bible just says he does. That could be. Well, that is true. I thought you were asking for a theological reason. <laughs> That's why I said that. <laughs> okay. But, you know, it's interesting because here's the thing that's really cool. This is later on in Philippians, um, in cha- chapter 3, verse 21. It says that one day we will have a body just like his glorious body. In other words, we'll have a glorified body too. Now, we're not going to become gods. Mormons believe that also. If you're good enough and you're a good Mormon, you can become your own god and have your own planet and have spirit babies. And anyway, You're like, I didn't know this. Go study Mormonism. It's really interesting. Just in case you didn't know, they also have very holy underwear. You guys laugh, but I'm serious. That is a very important part of their religion. They've got certain underwear they have to wear, and it's been blessed and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So if you didn't know that, I mean, I'm not trying to be mean. It's just the Mormon church likes to present themselves as mainstream Christianity, and they kind of keep hidden, and they don't talk much about the stuff that's really kind of very out there. All right? But anyway, that being said, Philippians 3.21 said that we as believers will one day have a body just like his glorious body. Okay? And we see in 1 Timothy 2.5 that Jesus is referred to even now as a man. So we have one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. That's not denying his divinity. It's just emphasizing that he is still human. So now we want to get to the practical part. In light of what Jesus did, because, you know, all this stuff is really theological, interesting. It's beautiful. It's poetic. Um, I can't wait to hear it if it was a song sung in the original language when we get to heaven or whatever, how it all goes. Okay. But um, the most important part in what, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention the last thing on your note sheet under that part. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Okay. But Paul launched into this beautiful theological expression of praise, but his whole point was to make a point. Jesus did this and he's God. So we should do the same thing. So how should we be like Jesus? All the things you guys mentioned earlier are true. But what's the main thing that Paul's trying to get across here? Okay. I threw in there Romans 8.29, where Paul writes, Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And we're not going to talk about what it means by foreknowledge and predestination and all that kind of stuff. But it basically says that believers in God's plan are to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Okay? All right. So that means that we wouldn't just do what he would do, but Paul says that we should have the mind of Christ or the attitude of Christ. You know, it was really popular back years ago, WWJD. You remember that? You know, bumper stickers and bracelets. And I heard a preacher preaching one time. He says, you know, it's funny. All these people were talking about WWJD. What would Jesus do? And he says, and you start talking, it's realized they didn't even know what Jesus did do. <laughs> How can, you, how can you try to figure out what Jesus would do in your circumstance if you don't even know what he did do, you know? Um, and he's talking primarily about people that say that Jesus would never judge and Jesus would never, con- you know. And it's like, yeah, you know, Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save the world, but he is the judge too. And he didn't just agree with sin. And so anyway, but we look at verse 5. I know we're skipping around a little bit here, but Paul introduces all the stuff we just talked about, this great example of Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's what the English Standard Version says. Some other translators said, 
have, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Say, well, why are there two different ways of, of translating that? Because they're a little bit different. And the reason why is because there is no verb in there in the Greek. What do I mean by that? Here's what is literally in the Greek. It is, think this in or among yourselves, which also in Christ Jesus. So, what does that mean? It could mean, which was also in Christ, you know, have the same thought pattern which Jesus had. Or it could mean, think this way because you are in Christ Jesus. The thing is, though, it's still the same thing. It says, this is the attitude Jesus had. This is the way he manifested what God called him to do. And it's just, the same thing should be true of us. And what it really comes down is that first line you have there. Jesus was more concerned about others than he was about himself. And if you really want to wrap it all up in one little line, that's it. If we're supposed to be like Jesus, for this specific thing that Paul's trying to get across is that we should be more concerned about other people than we are about ourselves. And I mean, he's already said that, right? And what we looked at last week, he says, don't do things from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Don't look just to your own interests, but to the interests of others. But we see in this example a number of things. The first one is this. He denied himself to benefit others. He left heaven, put aside all the stuff that we talked about, and was willing not only to come here, but to die the most horrific death ever designed by mankind, at least up to that point. He was willing to do that so we could be saved. You know, crucifixion, we're going to get to this a little bit later, but crucifixion wasn't just a horrible way to die physically. It was meant to bring the most ultimate shame, okay, to a person. Uh, so he denied himself to benefit others. Second Corinthians 8, 9, Paul puts it this way there. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, I know we'd like to believe it, but that does not mean that because Jesus died for us, we can all be rich in this world. It's talking about eternity. It's talking about salvation. He gave up so much so we could have so much that we don't even deserve. All right. So he denied himself to benefit others. Number two, he served others. It says that he not only came in the form or the whatever of a human being, but he came in the form of a servant. All right? And that word that is used there means that he didn't just look like one, he actually was one. All right? He didn't just act or pretend to be a servant, he actually was. We see that in the Gospels and other places. In Mark 10, 45, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, because he came as a servant, does that mean that other people could tell him what to do? No. Okay, I mean, we got to get away from the slave idea of a servant that, you know, if you're a servant, you have to do what I want you to do. There's a whole other idea of a servant of I've come to do what's best for you, to do what's good for you. I will serve you, but you're not going to tell me what to do. Okay, And I don't mean with that attitude. I'm just saying nobody could tell Jesus what to do, but he came to serve and he did. Vida. He asked him to, tr- to do something about the water and water problem, the wine problem at the wedding. Right there, he separated. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, he did end up doing what his mother, you know, his mother had asked him to do something about the problem with the wine at the wedding, but he made it very clear that when he did it, it was because he chose to. It wasn't because she had the the, uh, the authority to tell him. Yeah, okay. All right, so Jesus came to serve, and we see the greatest example of this in John 13, verses 1 to 17, the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet which we've talked about before, was one of the lowest things a person could do for another. In fact, in many cultures, you could not even um, ask your, or force your servant to do that. Now, if you had a slave, you could force your slaves to do anything, but, but you, know, you could not force it. It was just not something that was not done. It was considered so low, and Jesus voluntarily washed his disciples' feet. And when he got done, he says, I did this for an example. Just like I've done, you should do also. Um, not necessarily literally wash each other's feet, although the, I've been part of foot washing services and such that were very, very meaningful. But the idea being that just like I've served you, you should serve each other. Okay? Number three, he sacrificed and suffered for others. As we mentioned, he went all the way to the cross. Okay? Um, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he sacrificed and suffered for others. And I, I put both of those in there because, you know, you can serve without sacrificing. And some people do. But Jesus sacrificed and suffered in his service. You know, there's a lot of people that are willing to serve others if it doesn't cost them anything. It costs Jesus a lot, and he calls us to be able to do the same thing. And Jesus was willing to suffer the most horrific death, as we already talked about, physically and um, shamefully for us. Now, all these things, these three things so far, I know there's a fourth one, we're not there yet, but he denied himself to benefit others, he served others, he sacrificed and suffered for others. Who were the others that Jesus did all this for? I heard a lot of things and they all melded together. Who? Mankind. I mean, he didn't just do it for his family. He didn't just do it for the people that liked him. He didn't just do it for his followers, but he even did it for those who rejected him. You know, passage after passage. He did it for everyone. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still rebels, shaking our fists in God's face and saying, I'm going to do my own thing. Just leave me alone. Jesus was willing to die for us. Now, he did it for us, but that wasn't the only reason he did it. That's the last thing we at Number four, he did it to glorify God. He glorified God. Reread version 9 to 11. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As I mentioned earlier, the Gospel of John talks a lot about this, where Jesus said, I'm doing what the Father wants me to do. I'm saying what the Father wants me to say, all to give glory to him. So he didn't do it just for his own benefit or even for ours, but to bring glory and honor to God. So under conclusion, I've got some things here, and this really gets down to how does this apply to me and how does this apply to you? The big blank there, you're just supposed to put in there, do I? 
And I encourage you to make that personal. Do I deny myself to benefit others? Think about that for a minute. Do you? Who do you deny yourself for? There are some people it's easier to deny ourselves for. Maybe our spouse, if they do it for us. Our children, parents, our friends. But are we willing to do it for people that aren't any of those? Do I deny myself to benefit others? Do I serve others? Think about it. Who do you serve? And I don't mean serving God. I mean, hopefully that's true. I think I know pretty much everybody in here that that's your desire. But who do you serve? I mean, as I mentioned last week, all these things work really, really well in the home. Okay, and they should between spouses and families and all that kind of stuff. But who do you serve in the church, in the world? Are you willing to do that even if they don't appreciate it, even if they don't recognize it, even if they may come against you? Yeah, I encourage you to take this home and really meditate on this. Who uh, Do I sacrifice and suffer for others? Again, not that it's easy, but we're more willing to sacrifice and to suffer for our family members and our friends and stuff. But as God leads, are we willing to do it for other people who, again, may not appreciate it, who may not even notice it, may not say anything about it? No, it's not easy, Bert. That's right. It's not easy. That's why Paul has to encourage us to do this. Okay? And so the, the next line there, I've already kind of been doing it as we've gone through. Who am I willing to do this for? Who am I, you know, make sure you're not just willing to do it for the people that love you. You know, people you have a good relationship with. And then the next line there is, do I do it for God's glory? Or do I do it for mine? Because that's another trap we can fall into. Well, I'm going to really suffer and I'm going to serve and I'll sacrifice and, and I'm going to go out and touch people's lives and help those who are in need and share the gospel. And even if I'm rejected and all that kind of stuff, and people will think I'm really cool and spiritual. <laughs> We've done a lot of good stuff, but then we just stuck our foot right in the trap of pride. We should do it for God's glory. You know, I didn't put on your note sheet there, but in Matthew 5, when Jesus said, let your light so shine before men. And this is one of the greatest ways to let your light shine is love people, serve them, sacrifice for them, no matter what the response is, okay? He says, let your light so shine before men so they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So you've got to do it in such a way that it takes the focus off of you to the best of your ability. I mean, people may still misunderstand and say, oh, he's a really nice person, okay? But you're not trying to draw it to yourself. So do I do it for God's glory? And then the last line is just kind of summarize it all. Live for the glory of God and the good of others. Live for the glory of God and the good of others. And that's kind of what Paul's trying to tell us in this passage. If we want to be like Jesus, there's a lot of ways we can do that. And you guys answered that question at the beginning. We should be holy. We should love God. We should serve God. We should all these other things. But this particular passage, he's saying, listen, live for the glory of God and for the good of other people. Even if it means that you'll suffer, even if it means you have to sacrifice, even if it means you have to deny yourself, serve other people. And God will lead you into knowing how to do that. I'll wrap it up by just saying this. This doesn't mean that God doesn't care about us and our needs and that we can never think about that. As we talked about last week in verse 4, he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. God gives us permission to look to our interests, take care of our needs, and that kind of stuff, but that shouldn't be the main priority. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've had in your word tonight. Thank you for this beautiful passage. Jesus, thank you that you were willing to leave heaven 
become human. We can't even begin to imagine what that might have been like because we don't know what it's like to be God. But, Lord, you were willing not only to become human, but you were willing to have yourself horribly abused and mistreated for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you again for forgiveness. Father, we pray that you'd help us to the best of our ability and with the help of your Holy Spirit to follow your example, to serve, to sacrifice, to be more concerned about others than ourselves, Lord God, and may that be a great light that points people to Jesus. And show us what that means in our lives, Lord God. I pray, dear God, as we go through tomorrow and the rest of this week and the rest of our life, that maybe we'll see somebody and have an interaction, positive, maybe even negative, and you'll say, it's your time to serve. And you'll show us what to do. And help us to do it when it's hard, because Bert said that it's very, very hard sometimes. It is. I imagine it was hard for you too, but you did it anyway. So help us, Lord. God, we thank you for it. As we leave this place, we pray that you guide us and lead us and help us. And Lord, we give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.